Who knows when some version of our ancestors first crawled out of the ash and started jabbering at each other? Thirty thousand years? Forty? A long time to be the pathetic creatures we are now, huddling behind our walls and putting all our wits, all our learning toward the singular task of staying alive. That's all we make now. Better ways to do field surgery with improvised equipment. Better chemicals so we can grow more beans with little light. Once, we were so much more. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. This is a podcast where we read big books and have semi-big conversations. This time we're going to try and have a a more medium-sized conversation um, because we've read the second of a trilogy of books. If you've been following us, we've been reading N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy, which, you know, all three books kind of won the Hugo three years in a row, which was a big deal. Um, We did the fifth season last time. And we're, we're doing the Obelisk Gate this time. The fifth season, right? Did I just say that right? Is that what we read? Yeah, oh it's God. the fifth season, the Obelisk <laughs> Gate, and then later the Stone Sky. Okay, thank you. Because <laughs> for, yeah, for a second I was like, nope, we read the Stone Sky, but that's the third book. Okay, so, um, but I wanted to put that in a corner for a second um, because we have some things to say about it. Maybe less than usual because it's the second book in a trilogy, and so it really is a, a bridge piece, maybe not as standalone, but put all that in a corner because... For this podcast, Bill, <clears throat> there was some pretty big news a month or two ago that we're late getting to, but that we should, well, actually, we have talked about, but I want to talk about it maybe a little longer and, and more officially, because it came out that Francis Spufford, saint, patron saint of this podcast and beloved author of, of, of smart people everywhere, is how I would say it, um, he has apparently written a uh a, a sequel or a Narnia book. He's written a Narnia book, unofficial Narnia book. It's not sanctioned by the Narnia estate, the Lewis estate, and so it can't be published or anything, but he's written a book about Narnia. <laughs> I want to know what you think about that. <laughs> so this was interesting. Apparently it's called The Stone Table, and uh, Joel and I had heard that he had written it because I forget the details. You had read something somebody had written saying, I've just read a few chapters from this book my friend wrote, and it's great. Yep. Um, and so I knew it happened. And then about a week maybe after you sent that to me, maybe two, um, The Guardian, I think it was, posted a relatively short piece about it saying, you know, Francis Spufford has written this book, The Stone Table, which is an unofficial Narnia, like an interquel. I think it's about uh, Polly and Diggory, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yep. Um, but can't, you know, and reached out to the Lewis estate and they are not interested in publishing it yet, apparently. And so he's got this book and he'd like to publish it, but he can't. And, you know, his friends say it's really good. You know, tune back next time for another sort of random thought we have. It's not, <laughs> not like a long thing. And, uh, it was interesting because parts of the internet, this wasn't like a big brouhaha, but a couple parts of the no, internet yeah. found out about this. And the reactions appear to be divided between people saying, oh, no kidding, Francis Spufford wrote a Narnia book? That's super exciting. And people saying, oh, so some old author figured out fanfic and wants to get patted on the back for it. Which that, it's, in turn, was divided between people who thought that fanfic is dumb. People who said fanfic is great. It's just this wasn't that big a deal. I don't know why he's famous. It's probably because of something wrong with the literary world. And I had some opinions about that. 
Um, one of which is that I, I I do think it's probably you can at least meaningfully describe this book as as fanfic. I don't think that's right. exactly inaccurate. Um, but the reason why Francis Spufford writing a Narnia book is news, and my three hundred page Captain Wharf novel wouldn't be news, is that Francis Spufford is an established and respected and fantastic author, and I am none of those things. And I just <laughs> I get it on the one hand because like I, I do think fanfic authors do get sort of crapped on in a way that I think is inappropriate. I think it's I think there's a lot of fun stuff happens in those sort of fan communities and so on, and I I don't want to you know, talk crap about it, but it's a big deal when Francis Spufford does something in a way that it isn't what I do, because, you know, it's really just, ah, it doesn't matter. Spufford's great, and he listened to at least five seconds of our podcast once, and so I feel weird whenever we talk about him now, like, there's some chance he might listen to it, and I don't want to, like, you know, it's just odd. But <laughs> well, it's, I tell you what, it's a beautiful thing in my life that Francis Spufford maybe knows we exist, because um, he's great. And I do think, so, two thoughts about what you said. One, I, I, I'm I not privy to, like, I feel like all of the reactions outside of, happened outside of my narrow internet life right now, because I feel like I'm trying to narrow my digital, you know, just, I don't know, attention span or whatever you want to say. Um, so I, I, did, I saw your stuff, and I, you know, the Captain Wharf thing. First of all, the world's waiting, Bill. You know, like that, I would read that. <laughs> and, you know, you think you'd make some money on that. <laughs> um, but so I, two thoughts, though. One is that I think there is something different between uh, not not just any author, but like it's almost like a question of the reaction being like, do you know who Francis Spufford is or not? Because part of my excitement actually is I, I trust Spufford. I mean, like uh, Golden Hill is this kind of beautiful, like, 19th century novel about the 19th century that reads oddly like it was written in the 19th century or you know what i mean like 18th century 18th, 18th yeah century. sorry 18th century yeah so like it had like which actually only the person who i think did it that well and i actually think she did it better was penelope fitzgerald does the same thing when she writes about novellus with the blue flower which i don't know if you've read that but it's really weird because it feels like it's both clearly not of the time because it has all these different sensibilities with the style and yet it apes you know, that period. So I think convincingly anyway, so he's good at imitating, right? He's good at taking something and sort of making his own. And also the breadth of stuff, like you read all of them. I've only read some of him, but you know, he does this like nonfiction slash novel take on right. Red Russia. He does, does whatever he wants. And he seems to do it really well every time he does it. So that was part of the excitement for me. And the other part is I do think, I mean, I think there's a pretty basic question as far as like, what's the difference between Kingsley Amos and, you know, Kingsley Amos wrote a Bond novel, but he wrote the first non-Ian Fleming Bond novel and like, uh, you know, doing a fan fiction zine of James Bond. I, honestly, at some point, there might not be any difference. I think they do morph together depending on the quality of output. But at least in my experience, and I think in the, the beginnings of fan fiction, it's about self-gratification, right? It's like you're, you write stuff that specifically is supposed to validate and kind of, you know, please fans' secret theories and stuff. Whereas, ideally, like, if you're writing a James Bond novel to continue the James Bond world, I think literature is a lot of times about, like, disappointing sort of the thing you want to happen most with your favorite characters. Um, so this seems like a, a slightly different project. I don't want to tear apart too much, but... Um, I wasn't, yeah, I actually didn't even think about the fan fiction element that like, I, but I will say, so I just found it. So, okay. I don't know if I've ever told you this <laughs> or the world apparently, <laughs> which I'll be telling now. So I, 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 when I was like 10, I like started writing a Narnia novel 
and it was about Cornelius, who's from the Prince Caspian novel, trying to locate Queen Susan's horn. That he goes on some epic quest to find it. And I bring that up because I think the really interesting question with looking at an established series is like, what is left unsaid? You know what I mean? And so part of the other excitement beyond it being Francis Spufford is writing about the stone table and where it comes from and using two of the lesser known children who went to Narnia. That's like the perfect point of contact to exploit, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. I think there there are open questions there. I, I will say I'm not like, I don't think I'm quite as excited about this project as you are. Um, I am. I, I, I think it's, I think it's a, I think if I was there was anybody gonna write more Narnia, Spuffer would be a very good choice. And I think, um, by all accounts, this book is a really good. I mean, people who've read it say it's very good as a both as a standalone Narnia book and as a sort of a chameleonic exercise in trying to not just write another Narnia book, but write another Narnia book as if Lewis had written it, right? Which is right. sort of the was the project was he wasn't just gonna write a book set in Narnia, but try to write it in Lewis's style. I think that's a really fun literary idea, and I'll be excited to read it. But I mean, I, I will admit that like. I love Narnia. I don't think I love Narnia as much as you do. And I don't yeah. know as I have a desperate desire to go back there exactly. <laughs> well, that's, I so, think that's what, that's almost what's so funny is I, I think Spufford is probably, and I actually wouldn't, if you ask me like, do you want more Narnia books? The first answer without qualification is no. No, of course not. Why would I want more Narnia books? Like they already have, we already have seven in my mind, like perfect Narnia books. Who cares? And, you know, it's a great Chronicles. And then, but the second thing is like, if you ask me, okay, you have to have a new Narnia book, who is going to write it? I, I would not have thought of Spufford, to be honest. But as soon as he was the person put out, it's like, you know what? That's the one guy. That's the one guy whose Narnia novel I'd be interested in reading. And almost literally, I think not almost literally no one else that I can think of would have piqued my interest. No, I, and I think I would agree with that. I think, you know, if, if someone I'd never heard of was writing a Narnia book, I'd be like, I don't care about that at all and to, to be fair i think that's probably part of why some people were confused particularly on this side of the atlantic because while spufford's certainly an established author he's not a household name i think and right, i think he's less true. known over here so i'm sure to a lot of people who were reacting to this it was just some guy wrote a narnia book but right, of course right. you know we we spufford is our patron saint of this podcast here yeah. so uh, those, we, we know about all of this stuff those benighted fools <laughs> <laughs> haven't yet been preached the gospel of Spufford. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to them, Bill. We'll find them. Go about proselytizing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, do you want to talk about, uh, <laughs> about this book? <laughs> yeah, no, I, but just in, in closing, I, I am very excited to read it if, and when it ever gets, I mean, I'm sure at some point it will get surreptitiously leaked in a free form, if nothing else. I hope so, um, uh, so I think it will be an interesting project. So I am definitely excited to read it, but, uh, it's, it is it, it is simultaneously not maybe what I was expecting him to do next and sort of what maybe maybe I, I might have been a little happier if he'd done something else. But at the same time, hmm. it is a very spuffered thing to do something that's completely out of left field and like nothing he's done before. You know what I mean? Like, yes, yes. The guy's first completely nonfiction work is this 18th century style swashbuckling novel. Like I, he's going to do what he's going to do. And this is very exciting to see what he's up to just because it's. Spufford qua Spufford so yeah <laughs> <laughs> well and as a last note you're right I think we both love him because he does just do whatever he wants and it, it continues to be interesting and I think that's rare but also inspiring so okay so the obelisk gate 
the second book in this trilogy. So I, I've got a contentious, provocative question that I told you I was going to I was gonna maybe ask. I don't know if you can answer it. I, I had some problems with this book. This book was a lot harder for me than the first one. And I liked a lot, and I want to get to the stuff we liked eventually. But basically, I kind of want you to, to, to talk me out of this book not being good. <laughs> talk me into why it might be a good book that was worthy of its, you know, its, its, its other two parts and worthy of the Hugo. So one of the things that's odd about this book is it is, of course, very much the second book in a trilogy, which is a hard place to be. I think many people will say that the second part of a trilogy is always the weakest part. I think it's not literally categorically true. I think most people argue that The Empire Strikes Back is better than A New Hope and Return of the Jedi, etc. But um, it is in a weird place because it has to sort of continue the plot threads that were created by the fifth season, which was a really cool book and a really structurally complex book. And then also has to set up for the third book without actually finishing some of the stuff. So it, it does some table setting and some sort of brushing away of things that, that give it a little bit of a hard time to just be its own thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, yeah. I suspect, and I haven't read The Stone Sky yet, neither of us has, and uh, we actually put some thought into just rolling this and the next one into its own podcast, right? Like, instead of releasing three podcast episodes, just doing yeah. two. Uh, but then I think we decided to split it up because... It is interesting to talk about a second book as a text in its own right. Um, the first thing is, I am going to try to explain why I think this is. I, I think this is a pretty good book on its own. But also, the question I'm going to fire back at you is: Is that even a reasonable question to ask? Does hmm. this book have to have any identity on its own, except as part of a trilogy? Yeah. Well, so I think that's that's definitely the the crux of my. I mean, my hesitation because I suggested to you, I was like, I'm not sure I'm going to have enough to say about this book because I feel like. Any criticism, and I, I have some criticism that I think that will hold up even with even looking at the third book. But part of it's that so much of what I'm not sure about is possibly answered by the plot of the third book because some of the stuff for me bleeds together, right? So on one hand, I feel like I have some problems with her writing in this book. I feel like the first book did some really cool stuff, but what she ended up doing with that first book, at least I think she felt that she did this, is she kind of you know, put her feet in cement, right? That she kind of committed to this, this second person style um, that worked really well in the first book that then she had to continue and also somehow explain without, not quite yet, right? Because like, she's not quite explained why we're reading most of this book in second person, except that we are because someone's literally telling the main character her own story, right? Um but we're not sure why that's happening. And so she's doing this weird thing where she's married to a style that, like, for me, I don't think fits the content of this book. Like, the, the second person in the first book made sense because of the emotional distance and the fracturing of personality that the whole thing's about, right? Um, but so I think so I think some stuff does stand up under inspection. But yeah, I think the the big the big qualification that kind of keeps hampering me wanting to make a judgment is that more than the first one, this one just stops as opposed to ending, as opposed to maybe having like a complete narrative arc for any of its characters. Um, it certainly has an arc and it, we've certainly seen characters change, but nothing is completed. Nothing is finished. Everything is very kind of almost ham-handedly, you know, ham-fistedly, <laughs> whatever the dang phrases um it's left sort of to be resolved in the next one and so um so on one hand i think it makes sense because 
my biggest problems were actually with the first like 200 pages, whereas the second 200 pages got going faster. And I would say like um, that editing the first 200 pages, honestly, like for me, you could have edited this enough that I'm curious if like, did it need to be three books or should this have been two books? Um, Because I would cut a lot of the first part, to be honest. I would cut a lot, if not actual sections. There's a lot of stuff that I would cut within sections to make this book, I don't know, half as long as it is. Um, so it's not a total answer to your question, but it, in, in the sense that, like, I'm not sure she needs three books at all. I mean, yeah, I think that's why I would ask if this book is a good book. So, you know, I don't know if that follows. No, that makes sense. I do think there's a, we have kind of a magical trilogy number in our heads like as a society yeah. like just about everything uh, there, she actually did write a duology now that i say that uh <laughs> the yeah the, she did. i haven't read it but there is a duology the dream blood duology she wrote which is two books um but most people don't i think write uh write books either it's one book or it's three books or you know 12 like there's also a school <laughs> the sort of robert jordan school of thought where it's just all of them Never but i think like. most most people don't uh you know i think i think, I think when they conceive of a of a writing project, I think we tend to think of it as either one or three books, um, which is a shame because I think two is often enough. I think the Sparrow works pretty well as a duology. I don't think you would have done it as three books. You haven't read that. Um, I know. But I, the Sparrow and Children space, of God by I mean, space Mary Jesu- Space Jesuits. How? It's like, that's so up my alley. What am I doing, you know? I definitely, so I, I think it's a pretty good duology, that one. But I also, I want you to read it just to sort of know what you think. You know, it's partly, I think you'll <laughs> like it, but it's also, but if you don't, it'll be for really interesting reasons. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, no, I, well, one of our, one of, one of our favorite critics, um, B.D. McClay, she's like on record as kind of hating it, I think, actually. Um, which I think is interesting because she's kind of buddies with um, uh, Elizabeth Brunig, uh, who writes Cretz at the Post. And Elizabeth Brunig, I think, loves it. So I just thought, I think that's interesting when, like, I think of them as being very similar in a lot of their opinions and tastes. And they're both Catholic and they both have very different takes on it. Well, I, I think, well, this is a different book series, but I think uh, you and I, as sort of, you, you know, both uh, both Christians who like science fiction, but who are not Catholic, even as I think we have some some affinity for maybe some high church things might feel yeah. a little differently about the space Jesuits books than actual Catholic. You know what I mean? Like there, yeah. there might be a different yeah. kind of vibe. Anyway, read the book and tell me what you think, but uh, okay. we're going to talk about Let's this book it. some more. I promise. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but I hear what you mean though. Maybe the question is if the book has absolutely no ability to stand on its own, which I don't think either of us are saying it has no ability, no, but if it, if it no. is lesser as its own piece, maybe the solution would have been to split it just, just, make it two books instead of three we should probably talk about what happens in this book at some point it yes. occurs to me uh, we got yes. a little off kilter because of our spuffered prologue <laughs> yeah what you want to give a, a, a quick summary yeah so um again it's the second book in the trilogy so i'm gonna assume you know what happened in the fifth season here or we're gonna be here for a while but we did conveniently record a a whole podcast on that which should be easy to find if you're listening to this one um <laughs> The Obelisk Gate picks up, though, like right after where the fifth season dropped off, whereas the fifth season was three main characters who it turned out to all be one, right? But uh, one woman throughout three different parts in her life treated as three different characters. Um, obviously, at this point, the other, the two prior women, their stories have, have finished, right? So we're not going to keep doing that in this book. Instead, most of this book is told from two perspectives. There is a third that is kind of flirted with, and even a fourth very briefly, if I remember correctly. But um, really just two. One is Essen, who was the main character of the last book, um, who is the woman who has arrived in, uh, and I keep forgetting the name of the geode town. What is the name of the geode town? It's such a cool place. 
Castromino or something? Castremi. 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 <laughs> it sounds like stuff from other books, and so I keep mangling it. Um, so she is in Castremi, which is the, the underground com, which is an underground town that is in an old, like, geode and runs on earthquake magic. And I would just like to say that even though I, I agree with you, this book is not as strong as the first one, it still spends a lot of time in the underground geode town, which is dope. Um, I'm yeah, very fond no, of the geode town. <laughs> I am too. It's a great, yeah, it's a great concept. Um, so she spends a lot of time in there. But the second sort of point of view character is Essun's daughter, uh, Nassin or Nason, I guess I'm not sure. Uh, I'm going to say Nassin because it's, I'm going to make a decision. Um, who <laughs> Essen spent much of the last book looking for and then eventually realized she had just lost the trail of, right? So she right. she has kind of stopped looking for Nassen because she has no idea where to go. Um, as you may recall, at the beginning of the fifth season, Essen's story begins where she comes home after this massive earth-shattering earthquake, like literally earth-shattering earthquake that is probably going to be the end of the world, to discover that her husband had beaten their, like, three-year-old son to death and run off and stolen their daughter, who was about uh, nine or ten, uh, because the son turned out to be an earthquake wizard, and he didn't know that, an Aragene, and so he beat the son to death and then ran off with the daughter. Presumably he's going to do, he's going to kill her, is sort of what Essen is worried about. So her intention is to find her husband, kill him, and then if her daughter is still alive, rescue her. Well, we get... A fair amount of stuff from Nassen's perspective as well, which complicates that relationship somewhat in what I did think was pretty cool. Nassen comes home to find her father, Jija, standing over the corpse of, of her younger brother, Uche, and he asks her, is she one too? You know, is she one of the Origins too? But the book reveals pretty quickly that she'd always had a much better relationship with her father than she had with her mother. And so one of the tensions that's throughout this whole book is as Nassen tries to cope with her new circumstances and still learn how to be a better origin, a better earthquake wizard, right? Um, the tension is between the way her mother had taught her to be an earthquake wizard, which was a pretty sharp and sort of, you know, taskmastery way of doing things, um, versus the, the really great relationship she'd had with her father, who, of course, is terrified of origins and killed his son for being one, right? So that's one of the fundamental right. tensions throughout the book, which I did think was a pretty cool... Uh, you know, a pretty interesting sort of dynamic. So she ends up kind of running off with her dad um, as he's fled the town, and he doesn't seem to have a clear picture of what he's going to do. So uh, we're getting this kind of two stories, one of which is Essen in Kestremi trying to figure out the sort of broader world-shattering implications of what what has happened, and then Nassen traveling with her father down to the south where she goes into another sort of mini-earthquake wizard, uh, mini wizard Hogwarts uh, in the Antarctic. So just a couple of major highlights of the plot then, um, and I'll just talk one story at a time because they don't actually directly interface, except at the very, very end, very briefly. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, they're, they're definitely separate stories told at the same time. Um, but Nassim travels through the sort of post-cataclysmic world, and it's rough, but we don't spend a lot of time there, partly because that's really what Essen's whole story was about last book, and we get it that it's rough out there. Um, but they end up meeting uh, Shafa, who is the guardian which is sort of the Templar, if you think of them as Mage Templars, the sort of uh, people who are dis uh, charged with keeping track of the, the origins and stopping them from getting too out of hand. And she Shafa is the one who had taught Essen, had taught Nassen's mother, and had taught her, in part, as you may recall, by breaking her hand, right, very early on, to say you have to be able to tolerate this level of pain, um, which we learn later is something Essen actually did to Nassen as well. She actually broke her daughter's hand in a mirroring of this, even as she had historically felt, you know, disliked with what Shafa had done to her. 
Um, but Nassen runs into Shaffa, who has kind of had a a bit of a lobotomy, actually, because in order to survive what had happened to him at the end of Cyanite's story last book, where she basically destroyed that whole island, he had to call upon some sort of internal power, which is alive? Like, he's clearly got some kind of warlocky connection to some external power, which powers his guardian powers, and he had to sort of call upon that in a way that damaged his brain. Like, he lost a lot of his memories and stuff, so he's right. not exactly the same person. Um, but Nassen meets up with Shaffa, and he takes her to this, uh, the, what is it called? Found Moon is what they call it. It's a uh, it's a little community of f- 10 or 11 young Aurigines who are being trained by three rogue guardians, including Shafa. They're three guardians who have all in some way given in to this, uh, what is apparently an omnipresent temptation, and have in some way been changed in their allegiance. And he's t- trying to teach her how to be a better Aurigine, while trying not to be as mean to her as he was to her mother, basically. <laughs> right. Um, eventually, she unlocks some pretty serious magical power, like accidentally turns one of her classmates to stone, then later on doesn't accidentally turn a whole bunch of people to stone, does that on purpose, because she disagrees with the way... Uh, they're basically another part of the formal... what's left of the formal system between the Guardians and the Origins, and she uh, hates them for the way they basically treated her mother, and thereby caused her mother to treat her. So she she ends up being this pretty powerful thing at the end of the book, uh, and is met with one of by one of the Stone Eaters, who are the sort of mysterious figures. We still don't know much about them. We learn that they are. Boy, this book takes a long time to summarize, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. Well, so I so yeah. <laughs> well, I was gonna say. So actually, I think that you're weirdly you're weirdly getting at like. Um, by the way, actually, that was a great summary <laughs> of even Nason's part. Or Nassans, we chose. We chose Nasson. We chose. I it. did. You don't have to. You don't have to be bound by that. <laughs> we are. A, we are. A, we're a team, Bill. Okay, we're a team, man. Um. So, cause I, so I think you you actually in some ways got at what I think is both so remarkable about this book, but also I think what I had trouble with is that she is she's doing so much or trying to do so much with both stories and more with Nasson than with Esson. Cause it's almost like you can tell she wants to almost like she almost like needs to catch us up on Nasson, right? She almost has to go faster through some stuff because we spent a whole book with Esson, right? So we don't have to have some of the same introductions to her feelings about, you know, family or the world or her, you know, again, the biggest question in some ways is how do you feel? How do these characters feel as regards their own power, right? That's almost the biggest question that is throughout these two books is like, what do you make of your own power and how do you use it for the good of the ill of others, right? Um, and so I think what's hard, though, is that, for me at least, in the first 200 pages or 100 pages, she made a lot of moves that I think she wanted to be, like, the premise of Nassan's story. But because we had Essen's back backlog from the first book, like, it was, I, I was, felt like I was asked to choke down a little too much of like, okay, hey, here's Shafa. But when within like four pages, just so you know, he's really different. And I'm not going to totally tell you how he's different because I have to keep whatever's controlling him in his head. I got to keep that secret so I can reveal it as a big thing in the third book. But he's different. But again, I can't clarify too much or I'm going to get my hand away. Also, I'm going to totally invert Nasson's relationship with her mom from what you probably think it is which i agree is like the best move in the book but it also it it gives us some clunky moments i think with her dad because she's trying to also make it where this daughter would follow her murderous father which i think in real life would totally happen 
but it's a really complicated thing that would happen. And she moves through it so quickly. And honestly, like, I think Jija, for as much as she tries to give him some complication, he's short shrifted. Like, he, he just says stuff like, um, he says stuff like trained leashed animals are still animals. And because he's talking about, you know, how do origins become better? Will they get trained? He's like, nope, I want my little girl back. And there's just some clunkiness to the dialogue and to the setup of Nassan's situation that like it becomes interesting once we finally get far enough along that I've just stopped griping about it in my own head. But it was for me, it was like it was a lot clumsier than the first book. Um, And I know it's because she has to do so much so quickly. But I guess that'd be a complaint that I have is like, I don't know that she had to do so much so quickly. Like a lot of the Essen stuff feels unnecessary for a good part of the book. Things don't really start happening until there's an army outside the door in some ways. Um, Like a lot of it's just like vamping on like she needs to learn more about the obelisks, which is described so nebulously. Like, I don't know what's happening besides the fact that like we're now using the word magic kind of in a way that was a little cheesy at first, but became cooler as it went on. So I don't know. So I think that was it's not that she has too much. I just didn't think she always had the right balance as far as like who's getting a longer introduction, like like what's a premise and what's a complication of the original premises, you know? And I felt like the original premises were set up in the first book and she just tries to complicate them so quickly in the second book. And so many of them that I was like, I don't know that I buy all of these complications um, until of course, forward momentum just carried me past that. So that, that, that was partly, I think what your summary also reminded me of is she's doing so much. Yeah, there's a lot that goes on pretty quickly, particularly in, in Nassen's story, whereas Essen's story is, it's not, I wouldn't say it's entirely static, but it's still, it's all set in one place. It's all sort of dealing with the same two or three questions. But like, Nassen gets kind of hucked through a lot of stuff pretty quickly, but without actually, it feels like the book is actually shorter than the last book. I think this book's only 390 pages, and uh, they're relatively quick pages, whereas fifth season was, I think, closer to 500. Um, yeah. And it definitely felt more trimmed down. Um, but I'm not sure. I think it may have actually been over trimmed, which I, I'm usually a fan of not wasting time and you can definitely, I mean, this book doesn't waste time, which is good. I mean, that is something it does very well, but also there's some moments when I would have liked maybe a little more time, a little more, you know, particularly with that relationship between Nassan and her father versus Nassan's relationship with Shafa. Like, I kind of like where it goes, but I would have liked maybe a little more time dealing with that because it felt like it, like I blinked and things had major plot things had happened on more than one occasion. Yeah, it's funny. So there was a review um, of the, oh, must have been the seventh Harry Potter film. Um, and, uh, you know, it was great because it was from a guy who had not read the books and he was like an older guy. And, you know, in the in the movie and also kind of in the books, but, you know, they, at the wedding in the beginning of the Harry, Harry Potter movie, they, they just get that message of like, hey, um, the ministry has fallen. <laughs> you guys got to yeah. run. <laughs> and like for me as a book reader, I was like, okay, here we go. And the, the movie reviewer was like, why did all of the main ha- action happen off stage? Like I didn't see any of the important <laughs> stuff. I heard about it in like a ghostly message. And I felt a little about that with this book. Um, even, again, I, I think in some ways it's why I think it, it like you said earlier, it, it definitely is shouldering the burden of being the bridge between, you know, opening and closing because I, I, I so it's trimmed too much in places. I wish it wasn't trimmed. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's definitely, you know, trimmed too little with some of the essence stuff but she just kept holding things back that i didn't get and i think a lot of that comes from 
this frustrating second person usage where like you have Essen who her stuff is being like last time it's being narrated in second person. And we find out in the last book, but it's becomes much more explicit this time that like it's Hoa who's the stone eater that hangs out with her. Yeah. And so there's this, of course there's this knowledge problem because he is speaking from a future point and he knows more than she knows and more knows more than we know, but also she in the future knows more than she in the present knows. And so he's always saying stuff like, you know, she had makes a big discovery in the geode control center with her kind of engineer buddy. I'll call her, you know, the innovator Tonky. There's like this weird thing they find, which is maybe the same kind of thing that's controlling one of the guardians. It's like this living metal sort of thing. And um, it says it at one point, like, you know what it is immediately, but we're not told what it is. And so it just felt like there was this kind of constant holding back that to me felt sort of contrived. I mean, obviously everything's contrived in a book, but it didn't feel organic to what the action was. You know, like if you know what it is or like when um, Nassan meets uh, Shafa at the end of the chapter, she had, it's like the end of the chapter, she's like, she looks at him and she thinks in that instant, he's not alone in there. It's like, (laughs) why would she possibly think that? Like that, that's for me, that's us being, that stuff being forced down my throat a little too quickly without any developments. And that's why I say like the NASA stuff was almost the more interesting story. And yet it, maybe what you said is just the summary. It was just trimmed back too much. It was, it was moved along too quickly or something for me. I think I would agree that there's, it's a, probably a little too quick. Some of the, some of the stuff felt a little um, not forced exactly, but just like we didn't get any time to sort of dwell with it. I guess very briefly, I'll try to summarize what happens with Essen's story, which is should be easier. But while she's in Castramy in the in the geode space, she's got kind of two things she's worried about. The first is how they're going to survive down there, because in any fifth season, and this one most of all, like it's just hard to survive. The practicalities of life become very difficult mm-hmm. because most animals die. Those that don't die go into this kind of beast mode evolution where they just start doing horrible things to what's around them, which is, I think... It's mentioned in the first book with, like, the Kirkusas, the otter, like, the sort of big otter pets yeah. that suddenly turn carnivorous in a fifth season. But we meet a couple other things that do it as well, um, which we'll talk about more in just a second. So it's just sort of trying to run your fallout shelter with also trying to figure out from talking with what's left of Alabaster, her sort of teacher and... Uh, the book calls him his, her lover at one point, which is technically correct, but it's sort of <laughs> yeah, not they quite have a weird, right. They have a weird relationship. <laughs> um, but uh, who is like slowly turning to stone as she tries to figure out why he wrecked the world in the first place and what he's wanting her to do with the moon. Uh, we don't have all the details of this yet, but the gist of it is she's going to try to connect all of the obelisks, which are the big floaty gem things that are also a source of power such that when the moon comes swinging back around on its irregular orbit, it was thrown in some tens of thousands of years ago. It can be restored to an original orbit, or if some of the other people get their way, maybe just come crashing into the world. <laughs> There's definitely at least one <laughs> one one faction that wants to, to harness the powers of the obelisks to, I think, just run the moon into the world. Um, and uh, these come to a head as she fixes the problem of the sort of nearby raiding party from one of the other towns that is going to just overwhelm her town. She fixes it by tapping into the power of the obelisks to kill all of them and also turn their home city entirely to stone, which is, uh, man, this book doesn't, this book series doesn't let up with sort of the casual genocide, does it? I mean, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. Essen has killed a lot of people, but this is, I mean, this, this is at least the second town that she's destroyed. (laughs) 
<laughs> third. I think it's the third town she's I destroyed. I think it's the third, technically, because she destroyed Miov, right? Or whatever it was. Fourth. Uh, it's the fourth town she's destroyed. She's destroyed <laughs> Tirima, where she was living. Oh, uh, my not gosh, Not completely, Tirimo. but she yeah. wrecked a lot of it. Earlier in her life, she completely annihilated, I can't remember, Aaliyah. Ally? Aaliyah, Aaliyah yeah. Later, she wrecked Miov, and now she's destroyed uh, this other town, which starts with an R, the name of which I's, I've lost. Um, Renace or something. It's Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, and uh, so it then sets up where she's very powerful. She's figured out how to control the obelisks, but Nassen has also become very powerful and appears to be being used by one of the other factions, such that Essen's goal and Nassen's goal with regard to the moon appear to be uh, at odds. And that's mostly the big thing with the plot. There's sort of one major revelation about the way the the earthquake wizardry works. Um, we're, We're taught in the first book that... It's you. You move heat and power and like momentum, right? Like you, yeah, you move it's heat very much to cause momentum. At, it's very much the Avatar: Last Airbender sort of. Right, and so you can pull heat from living things nearby, or you can pull heat from like seismic activity to create more seismic activity. But uh, both Nassen and Essen learned that if you look basically deeper, because they were sort of taught to do this by the the Fulcrum by the Wizard School, right? But they both learned that if you look deeper, you realize that you're not actually moving heat as such. You're moving this sort of it's kind of like the force, right? It's a mystical power that is created by and bound by living creatures. And so it appears to be that part of why you're moving seismic activity, you're actually moving like the life force from bacteria and like oil, like decomposed dinosaurs or whatever, right? Uh, so that's actually part of what you're doing. And so you can use it for more precise actions and with sort of more existential ramifications than just using heat and power. And so this, and this word is called magic, we learn with kind of a, <laughs> kind of a, this is this is the word they use well i don't care what's the word the word was magic i'm like okay but <laughs> well and she really tries to pull that one off because she has s on react you know unimpressed right she's like yeah. okay great i don't know what that means but it, it was kind of like the end of the first book where it was like tell me <laughs> have you ever heard of the moon <laughs> and yeah. i was like okay you're talking to the reader in a way that i i get you have to but also like there has to be a better way to do it um even honestly, like, this is dumb. I know that everyone else does this, but, like, even spelling it differently would have maybe helped me with the first introduction of it. But it, that's, that's the, 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 the bigger point, though, is that what you're saying, actually, is that I think this book officially moves from any kind of sci-fi elements. Because we talked about this being book, you know, both sci-fi and fantasy. But it's officially fantasy, right? This is a fantasy story that have, that has, like... It has some piecemeal sci-fi stuff. Not that it matters, but as far as like the things it cares about, it doesn't care about sort of, um, cl- you know, climate change from a technical level. It doesn't care about maybe like the kind of things that Ring World would care about, right? It cares about how these people relate to magic and how do they relate to each other, and how that relation to magic reveals how we think of the Earth, which to me feels very more fantasy as opposed to kind of the technical questions of like you know um something like hg wells did of course um is that I mean, that's reasonable right yeah i think it's i think it's definitely at least at this stage i think it's more meaningful to describe it as fantasy and i do think that like it's won some specifically fantasy awards right where the hugo is science fiction and fantasy right but it's it's won right. some explicitly fantasy awards so i, I don't think that's I think that's consistent with how people think of it well so i so i guess um what i would also be curious about one thing we could talk about, which is maybe not as interesting, um, 
as it always is to me, <laughs> as it will be to you. But I, I am, I think some of the, the pressure of reading a book like this, of course, is that I'm reading it for a podcast, right? So I'm reading it so that I can talk about it with my friend Bill. And of course, mostly this podcast is a way for us to just, you know, have a good time and have like almost like scheduled adult fun <laughs> because life is sad <laughs> and stuff. But, 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 you know, but at the same time, like I, I don't have a lot of this in my life, right? Where I get to read something and just talk about it. And whether it's, pretentious or helpful whatever and in a lot of ways it's just fun even if it is sometimes you know maybe like goofy or pompous or whatever on my end at least and so but one thing i couldn't get away from is that um you know there's like a classic line i think it's wordsworth where and i don't actually agree with him on this per se but like he talks about like murdering to dissect right that a lot of times with our artwork and to understand it, we kill it. And I do think that's more true of a book like this, where I think part of the reason that I enjoyed the second half better than the first half, I think, again, there's real stuff that's maybe problematic in the first half that she should have fixed in editing. But also, like, I did kind of just turn down the critical gaze and was like, this is a fun book that is meant to be a romp. And I'm not sure it has a lot of, like, of the content that would allow me to talk about it for hours. You know, like, for example, there's a moment when she's like, when Essen takes over a sort of voting moment and says, we're not going to vote on who gets to be people. And that feels very political. And I feel drawn to that as, as an idea of like, well, we could talk about politics. We could talk about the idea of like this relationship between you and your own power and how people don't like your power and how you use the hatred of others for your power to either, get revenge on them or to build something new for them. Like that's what Yika's doing, right? Or in the, in, you know, the kind of the leader of Kostrima, she's building something inclusive with her power and not just destroying three or four towns. And so like there is, it feels like there's content here, but when I press on it, it sort of, it sort of dissipates. And that, and like, I want to get to a place where like, that's not a criticism, but also to be realistic about like, this book is better as a romp and to overburden it feels like almost a disservice to it, I think. I think that makes some sense. I, uh, I'm like, I want to be careful because I don't want to call the book dumb because it's not dumb. But no, no, and that's not is, what I'm saying either. Yeah, yeah, no, I know it's not. I just, I think that would, it'd be very easy to take what you're saying as this book's dumb, don't think about it too much, which I think is not what you're trying to say. But uh, I, I do think that there's something about how, yeah, this book has much more momentum, I guess. Like, it's it's not really designed, maybe, to sit and pick it apart the way some of the other texts we've read have been. This book is a little bit more interested in, in sort of moving forward. And there's, there's a sense in which trying to hold it still and look at something maybe isn't really understanding the picture of the thing, right? Like, it, it's not a book that maybe works as well in individual moments. And I do think that it's... It, it is kind of an odd book because, again, partly just because it is a second book in a trilogy but also because it's trying to be about a lot of things without having a lot of extraneous like world-building chapters, which is actually one of the things that I think is pretty strong about both books yeah. is it really doesn't spend a lot of time saying, you know, and here's a whole chapter which is really just about the specifics of the political structure in Kestremi, which is both good and bad. It's good in the sense that like it's always pretty easy to keep track of what's going on. The book never feels like it's wasting your time. But one of the reasons something like Game of Thrones works is because it does have chapters that are basically just, <laughs> here's, yeah. you know, here's a history lesson. And that's kind of frustrating sometimes, but it, it allows some of the moments that are based on sort of the, the world building, like on the, the history or whatever, to, to land a little better because you have more context for what's going on. I still don't have a completely great picture 
of how this sort of caste system works um, in this universe, right? Which is where people seem to be assigned a sort of use caste. I think it's, is that literally what it's called? Yeah. Um, yeah. You're like, you're a leader, you're an innovator, you're a builder, you're a breeder. Um, and one of the sort of weird things about the one she's in is they've put uh, Raga or Origin as one of the use casts, which is a, uh, you know, it's, it's a big change from other other comms. And on the one hand, I, I understand it enough to sort of know how it works, but I'm not sure I've got a complete list of what they are. Like, what exactly is the difference between an innovator and a, and a strong back? Like, where exactly does that split up? Like, you know, and that's, on the one hand, it doesn't really matter because we're it's really about people, which is what we talked about in the last book. It's not about the world as such. It's really about the people. Yeah, it's very character focused for sure. But on the other hand, once we have a character sort of declaring herself kind of a despot over a, over a, over a city, I start to get concerned what are the sort of political ramifications of that going to be, right? And I think what they're going to be is nothing because she's not going to hang out with them after this is what it looks like. She's going to go somewhere else. But um, it, it makes me a little nervous about some of these these sort of bigger moments because you're right. They just go by so fast that I don't know if I quite understand what all it's going to mean later. Well, and I, and I think so. And I, and I think and what I'm also trying to get at is definitely trying to get at a way in which so I because um, I, I this argument to me makes most sense, of course, in terms of Harry Potter, mostly because everyone's read Harry Potter and everyone misreads Harry Potter or misuses it, I think. And there's sort of this sort of this classic argument right now that goes on online about like you know, <laughs> well, J.K. Rowling was part of it. Like J.K. Rowling couldn't resist tweeting that quote Voldemort was nowhere near as bad as Trump, <laughs> and she quoted this in like 2015, <laughs> right? Which is which is sort of like forget the you know political content of it. That's a sort of really. I think weird thing to say because it feels like everyone keeps using Harry Potter to try and describe the real world. And every time that happens, you know, the big concern people have who are like, Oh, you're infantilized in political discourse. And I was like, okay, maybe, I don't know. But for me, as someone who like loves books, I actually think that kind of discourse flattens the books. You know what I mean? Not that they aren't these kind of great studies and, you know, adults maybe <laughs> using and puppeting children in questionable ways that are also necessary or what like you can make a good argument actually the best argument is made by brian phillips right that like harry potter takes the aesthetic of old-fashioned english boarding school life and places it in the center of a narrative about like uh, i think he says like political inclusiveness right yeah so like there's a, like that's a smart take because that's like talking about how harry potter is political in a way that i think also is true to the books without flattening it. And I guess that's sort of what I'm getting at with this is where I, I feel like because of maybe some of the noise surrounding this book, but also sometimes because of the book's own gestures, like I'm tempted not because of the book, but I'm tempted to be like, well, what is she saying about power? And I think again, in some ways she's saying some very smart stuff. And I, I think Yika versus Esson, she really is leaning into like what happens when you are like justly, so when you are, what happens when you have a uh, when when revenge would also be a just reaction? Is there a way to to somehow build a community that's not built on sort of a reverse, you know, backlash or whatever, right? Because Yika is trying not to kill all the stills, and Esson has to be literally stopped from killing them all by Alabaster. And so yeah. you can definitely extract that into like what's these hard questions of of power dynamics politically, but like what you're saying, the book doesn't pause in these moments. The book wants you to be aware of them, but it definitely mostly wants you to ask what's going to happen next. And so in that sense, I feel like um, 
it's a reduction of the book because the book is most enjoyable as a romp that has maybe smart things to say, but they did that. It has to be a smart thing primarily. Like, um, sorry, that that doesn't sound bad. (laughs) The the idea that it has to be an uh, expositional thing primarily, as opposed to a, a romp to me is like just dishonest to the book. And I found myself being pulled into that in ways that I was like, you know what? This book is better if I let it, show me what it wants to care about which is like yeah getting to the next cool action scene learning more about magic whatever that's all i had <laughs> um oh i i will say that's what i thought of i cause a, a good a good comparison would actually be um we read we read the stand you know which talk about a book that needed some trimming um yeah. <laughs> but actually do you remember there's that whole section where like actually i think they don't do a great job but he talks about um one of the characters gets pregnant they talk about <laughs> women finding men for protection. And of course it's Stephen King as a male author doing this. And so we talked a lot about maybe the stuff that he was annoyingly kind of creepy about or whatever, but that, that book took time for the characters to have different points of view on, Hey, we seem like we're regressing into this kind of like primitive gender dynamic. And then other characters saying, okay, but what comes first, you know, survival or these sort of niceties and I think a lot of the questions that uh, Jimison might be interested relate to that. But I actually think that they're kind of there as almost background to like, yeah, here's a woman who's in grief. And how do you get through grief through a positive creation of a new world or through a continued kind of destruction of the world that hurt you? Like that would be a more, I think, apt question for this book's sort of profounder ideas. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I, I think the, the book does hint at some more sort of because you're right, like the tension between Essen and Ika is kind of an interesting political question about how these people who are these historically oppressed minority who are also have sort of the X-Men problem where they could kill everyone around right. them, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. but they're suddenly in charge. And how do they try to balance like trying to run a just society with also the knowledge that if things go south, all the people around them will try to kill them. I think there right. are some moments that are pretty interesting, but they, the book does blow past them pretty fast. And it's much more interested in essence personal journey which again i think is fine and so what i think part of what you're saying is maybe it's okay that the book is primarily about essence personal journey and if we try to spend a lot of time focusing on the broader political ramifications rather than just treating them as sort of questions raised um i guess i'm saying the political questions here are more interesting and for how they bear on what essence should do than about what societies should do with a capital s that sound right yep i think that's about it yeah yeah i think think that i think that makes sense uh, so I, I have a so I mean okay um, we've not neither of us have read the third book um, I have a very obvious theory but why do you think that Hoa is telling Essen her own story so we got some more hints at this in this one than we did in the first one right in the first one we just learned that Hoa is telling her like that that it's it's uh, it's diegetic right the second person narration is in some way canon right it, it's not an yes. external force just adopting that as a stylistic choice. Um, and we get a couple of hints throughout. He talks a lot about somebody, something being part of you, something being, you know, I'm part of you. This, this is part of you. And partly that's clearly a reference to just how memories work and how people influence other people. But I'm wondering if there isn't something a little more literal to that. Um, we also know that he's manipulating her in some way. He says as much in the, one of the yeah. interludes. So clearly something about, so, so the, the title of the book is the obelisk gate, which is some sort of word for a construct that happens when you channel all 200 and whatever obelisks together to 
you know, cause some sort of vast uh, influence on the world. In this case, catching the moon is literally what they talked about, which is what right. I'm talking about. That is cool, right? Like the moon's <laughs> flying around and they're going to fire all these magic crystals to hold it still. That's pretty dope. I mean, they're still uh, like the book is still pretty dope. Let's be clear. It is. I, say, <laughs> I do. I do love that. And also not that I've watched a lot of this, but it also reminded me of the the space trash comet that Futurama has to solve. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't know if you've seen Futurama. I haven't seen that, no. <laughs> it's pretty great. But they solve it by just shooting more trash into the atmosphere. Anyway, it but it so I, I there was an uh humor to it that was completely non book related that I couldn't totally let go of. <laughs> anyway, keep going. Um so I don't have a precise theory, but I think clearly she uses the obelisk gate and it changes her in a pretty drastic way, right? Even just mm-hmm. the little she did with it this book turned one of her arms to some sort of magical stone, right? Um, So she's clearly gonna, like, become one with the universe or something like that after she does it, and or ascend to godhood or something like that. Not literally, right? But in some way be changed in some sort of drastic and maybe transcendental way, and it's gonna need to be reminded who she is by Hoa. That's kind of my thinking. It's not very specific, but that's kind of my thinking. What do you think? No, well, so you you gave me like a, a theory that you put words to a theory that I, I hadn't totally been able to enunciate. My first theory was that she's a stone eater. Um, oh more, yeah, maybe. In a more like straightforward sense, because uh, the talk, the book talks about like you know forgetting that stone eaters don't remember, like you ask them their name and they don't answer because if you've been alive for ten thousand years, you know you probably would forget your name too. You know it's hard enough to remember fifty years ago or whatever, right? Um, and so part of me thought like the very easy answer is that, okay, she's a stone eater. And I feel like the end of the book, um, gives a very obvious hint that like alabaster is now a stone eater. Yeah. Um, right. She, 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 she S on, she's a new stone eater and she's like, I've never seen one made of alabaster before. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the idea that you just had, I've been thinking about this for a while. I've been curious about the idea of this whole, like the emphasis on father earth and it would be like, it'd be too on the nose, but yeah, it'd be interesting if she is somehow transformed into mother earth, like the seed of mother earth. Right. Cause there is this weird way in which origins are, they become part of the earth if they overuse their power. Right. And that she as like the nexus of the obelisk gate, brings all this stuff together. So it would be interesting if like the transcendence was at a higher level, I would be worried about the cheesiness of like her becoming mother earth in like a strict way. But actually like, I I've been curious what she's going to, you know, I'm curious what Jimison's going to do with that whole, the whole, the earth is alive, right? We get that a lot. Um, which is my only, that's not to circle back, but that's actually one of my only other big problems with the book is like, you mentioned it in kind of a pre-conversation we had more than once we're told there are three factions but there's actually like 18 factions, it seems like to me, <laughs> because like it talks about like the Stone Eaters are people and the humans are people. And then there's a, there's something else. There's Father Earth. But actually, like the Stone Eaters are fighting each other. The Guardians are sort of magical, but they're not origins and they're not just normal people. And they're maybe on the side of Father Earth or they're on no one's side. They're like, you know, like, but, I, but that to me is like that's already like four factions and then there's i don't know so that was the one thing where i thought part of the issue of clarity was purposeful because we're learning what things are and part of it felt like the thing of like well i've got to i've got to wait until the ending to lay on my cards on the table and i that's the one move where this book it felt like she was doing that a lot more and it's maybe just you know the consequence of it being the second book that naturally she's holding back because of course you know we're not there yet but still, it was frustrating because it felt like 
people had more clarity than I had, and I didn't understand why they weren't just saying what things were. Um, but we'll see, I guess. We'll learn what they are in the third book, maybe. I don't know. No, that makes sense. So one of the things I did want to talk about that I actually I, I do really like about this book and the series as a whole, and I think it is also occasionally the cause of some of the moments that I didn't think worked as well. So we both talked about, at the end of the first book, you know, is there such a thing as a moon? You know, dun-dun-dun, right? And how that was kind of weak. But I think that, and also the moment in this book where the word they used was magic, right? Where we're also like, okay. That's... You got it, yeah. <laughs> I think that's a symptom of one of the things that is actually pretty cool about the book, though, which is the book really, the books really want to challenge the sort of things that we take for granted in a society and in storytelling and such and try to highlight all the ways that this universe doesn't do those things, right? Uh, because of the just inherent lifelong danger that is caused by the, the fifth seasons, right? Um, and one of them is people don't look at the sky, right? Like yeah, that's true. They, they talk again and good. again and again yeah. how people are never looking at the sky. They're always looking at the ground. Um, and so the astronomers are just made fun of. Um, they're not called astronomers. They're called something else. But the people who do that sort of thing who would have talked about something like a moon and the stars are just kind of junk science, pseudoscience people, right? Uh, and similarly, clearly they don't really have a concept of magic as like a myth, mythical thing, right? Because um, I think the fact that she is using the English word for magic rather than some, you know, or even just putting a K on it, right? Yeah. Is meant to imply that this is not a word which is being used. Uh, this is a foreign word, right? Which means that this is a society that has no concept of magic, right? No, I agree. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, I totally. Yeah, I do actually I, think it's pretty cool, right? That this is a, this is a world that has no notion about some sort of magic of some sort of thing that breaks the rules and lets lets you cheat, right? Let's it's a world that's so bound into its notions of society they don't even have stories about something like that, right? Like they don't they don't have a Harry Potter story where they're all kind of where you know where there's a fantasy you yep. tell your kids about how maybe you'll go to a, you know become something that can do all these cool things. But I do think there's there's a way in which those sort of weaker moments are an attempt to highlight that by making a revelation which doesn't work as well for the reader as a way to highlight um, something we took for granted, right? Like, I'm not sure I didn't know there was a moon until the end of the first book. Maybe she hinted at it, but I didn't realize it. Oh, totally. No, I agree. So, so for as much as I'm not, I'm, the revelations are kind of deliberately anticlimactic, but in a way that I'm not sure necessarily quite works, I still get what it's part of. And I do think there's parts of, of this book which also served to, you know, highlight that. Like, they're all not that bothered by the fact that they're going to have to resort to cannibalism. Yes, I know. I, I did like that. She will not let the reader off the hook for like everyone you're rooting for is going to eat one of their neighbors. <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> and they're all sort of like, yeah, that's, you know, it's bad. It's a shame, but they're not like existentially troubled by it. It's just, yeah, we're going to need to get more meat eventually. And uh, so we're clearly going to have to resort to cannibalism when that becomes, you know, it's not the first thing we do, but we're just going to have to do that. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just, yeah, no, that was, you're right. That was really well handled. <laughs> and, you know, the, she talks about like the, the architecture, I think this is in the first book, but there, there are balconies in, uh, Eumenus, the big city and how mm -hmm. that is just mind bogglingly silly to the people who see it, who aren't from there, because it's a terrible thing to structure, to build in a world with constant earthquakes, you know, um, they distrust metal because <laughs> it, you know, and, and the stuff like that, that is, I think one of the really pretty cool things about this book series is the way like they have scientific advancement but only on things that let you live a little bit longer and there's there's a bit about this in this book where they talk about it right like maybe back in the day people built things that weren't just improvements on field surgery right i think that's almost right. exactly the quote right yeah like yeah because yeah. they do i mean they re they reattach tonky's arm 
Like they, they've got some pretty advanced medical, like they understand antibiotics and such. Right. But it's all the sort of thing that you can do quickly to fix somebody right right away and to try to help you survive longer. It's not complicated advancements in art or sort of what we might think of as, you know, it's not science that doesn't immediately have a benefit. And I, I think that is a pretty cool thing she's doing in these books. And I do think this this particular book did advance that ball several times. I mean, the line about field surgery is from this book. So Yeah, no, that's, yeah, because Lerner says that, or Lerna says that, which yeah. is great, I think. And I, well, and also it made me think about, like, I, I did like one of the inversions that she was doing, or one of the, maybe, maybe not inversions, one of the complications she was doing, uh, or creating was, with um, the Guardians specifically about how the fulcrum training, we always knew it was about control. But actually, I you know again a lot of the stuff you know I don't understand how it all works. And when sometimes when she gets into like the, the nitty gritty of like the magic is silver and moving, like it's kind of usually it's a lot of energy um, with the pros and a lot of like it seems really interesting. But I don't always have any idea what she's talking about, you know, in strict terms. Yeah. And yet. She she obviously knows the whole world because she really convinced me that fulcrum training for Origins, you know, going to Earthkick Wizard School, is both as useful as we've seen it be, and as it actually she convinced me like here's how it's a really effective basically muzzle on the power of these powerful people that we actually they actually have successfully redirected them in a way that is convincing, right? Like, cause the origins feel powerful and they do cool things. And yet they've been so subtly turned away from the obelisks and the actual magic of the magic they're doing that they can't rebel the way that NASA and Essen are now rebelling. Right. So I, little things like that were like, I think she definitely has a really good grasp on the world and has used the nitty gritty to create real elements of tension, um, including with this whole, guardian versus origin thing where like you know they can kind of turn off origin but can they turn off magic or orogeny sorry you know and like um definitely with nasa i think it's interesting how she's really pushed on this book about kind of the self-trained origins versus the fulcrum trained and then how in so many ways nasa and actually also ika are ahead of eson in really important ways um and that felt like real stakes, you know, for the story, it felt like a real development um, that I thought was only possible from what you're saying, sort of this attention to the world building and how is this world actually structured and how, you know, how would it be kind of controlled? Um, what would offset what power? So, which is just, you know, that's in some ways just basic fantasy stuff, but it was, like you said, she does it with really fun stuff, right? Like it's cool that people can move boulders or turn people to stone. That's a crazy way to die. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I thought a lot, of, a lot of that worked for me. It, it is kind of a frustrating book. To, I think probably if you're listening, you've heard us sort of, and it's part of it is because it is really, you know, we have questions about things that aren't clear, but maybe they'll get fixed in the third book, and maybe that's okay if they get fixed in the, you know what I mean? Because again, we, we all knew this was part of a trilogy, so maybe it's okay that we don't understand how some of this works yet. And this is one of the things that I, I do think is really interesting about trying to talk about individual books that are part of a trilogy as individual texts right like and it's just such a difficult challenge that i think is very interesting to talk about because on the one hand you might want to say well if it's really a standalone book it should be able to stand on its own but at the same time is that really meaningful when it's very clearly just a second major portion of a trilogy released this way for ease of reading and because no one's going to pick up a 1500 page book you know what i mean like you have to sell it as a trilogy no one's going to buy just the fifth season right bring it in at 1200 pages 
I mean, I guess maybe she's an established enough author. Maybe people would have done it, right? But it still would have been a lot harder to get people to pick up. And you know, it's like the, the Lord of the Rings, right? Is isn't a trilogy. The Lord of the Rings no, is a book. It's it's one book. Yeah, it, one, and it, but it was sold as a trilogy, right? Yeah, yeah. Which they, you know makes makes a lot more money if nothing else. <laughs> And, you know, again, also, particularly that where nobody, I mean, I guess The Hobbit, but still, I mean, you know, to go from The Hobbit to a, you know, however many hundreds of pages book, I, I don't think people would have bought it. Uh, <laughs> and so this is, you know, to what extent is the fifth season really three separate books or is it is it really just kind of a Lord of the Rings like thing that is right. all one, all one, really all one work? I, you know, I don't know. But no, I think I think we'll definitely yeah yeah. But I, th- I think you're right because and part of me still feels like they're more discreet than Lord of the Rings. But I I feel that less with this book, and I'm wondering exactly right if after the fact it won't be clear that like this is a thing that you should read in one week as one book, <laughs> and that the discrete volumes are purely for convenience and publishing money. Right? That that's the only real reason. And that might be. I will say though, even if that's the, the case, I still think that. The reason I still would buck against that is because the first book with the the three timelines of Essen was such a unique thing to that book that you can't replicate that I think from like an authorial perspective, like a writerly perspective, if I was someone who's reading this book in a workshop or something, God forbid, you know, God dismiss all workshops in the world for the sake of the writers. <laughs> um, I think that my, what some of my feedback would have been like, I, I think that the con- the conceit that she came up with for the first book, I think she should have pulled out the Hoa stuff in that book, like the like the one intrusion where it's like, hey, I'm Hoa, I'm telling you the story. Yeah, it's like it's like literally like two intrusions. Maybe she could have easily cut that and then come up with a completely different, if not frame, which is what she's doing. Right, is a frame story that we're not privy to. Um, you know, if not come up with a different frame, just do something completely else. Like I actually think this book. I think it should have just moved into the first person for Essen. Um, and it wouldn't have, it wouldn't, you wouldn't have lost anything for me and you would have gained a lot. And so because of that stylistic break, whereas like Lord of the Rings, I remember when my brother Mark first read it, I accidentally, I, for, I, I remember, by the way, spoilers for Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Boromir, I read it, you know, really young. I read it like a couple times, but I always remembered Boromir dying at the end of the first book, like he does in the movie, yeah. of course. But of course, he doesn't, right? He dies yeah. at the very beginning of the second book. And so Mark told me he finished Fellowship of the Ring, and I was like, oh my gosh, can you believe Boromir died? <laughs> and which, you know, was horrifying to him. And he was so mad until like half an hour later, he came back and he's like, oh, he died like a chapter later. <laughs> yeah, it's like chapter one of book two. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay, because that's literally someone someone in the publishing office just saying, okay, cut here um, so that we don't have too many words and we'll then just keep going later. Whereas this book did, did to me feel like a complete thing happened in the first book, Cyanite Story. And it had its own style. It had, it had its own kind of, you know, justification. And then sort of the justification continued, I think probably because she's a stone eater or something. So like it will in the end have its own good justification. But to me, not nearly as, as convincing as just like stopping the second person with the first book and doing first person for this book. That just to me is like the major thing that she should have changed. Um, not that it still wasn't good. I just think she got married to a concept that I think maybe outlived its usefulness um which i think she even gestures to hoa is intrusive to the point of annoyance for the first 200 pages even at one point he says i want i bet you're wondering why i'm 
I'm telling you your own story with such confidence. But let's just keep going for a little longer. It's like, okay, so there's some trepidation on the author's part too, I think. Yeah, I still I'm still not madly in love with that. And this is this is just a again, this is a thing she likes doing. She she does that kind of thing in the Inheritance trilogy a fair amount as well, where where the the you know, the authorial voice, which is always a, a character, a diegetic character, comes out and sort of comments on the sort of broader storytelling reasons why she's doing something. Right. And I I get it because it, it is a sort of a deliberate attempt to sort of lampshade stuff. And I, I, I sort of understand why she's doing it, but I, 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 I don't like it particularly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I, I didn't like it that much in the Inheritance trilogy, except for the, there's a little novella she wrote afterwards um, of the Inheritance trilogy, which is just one big, long sort of voice exercise like that that never stops being it. And actually, I think does work very well um, from the perspective of a very newly born god trying to figure out what it's like to be a god on this planet. And, uh, making things really bad for a while and then making them better. And it actually works. I think it works actually pretty well in that, which is called um, the kingdom of gods, I think is the one I read them all right after each other. So I forgot which is which anyway. Uh, but it's clearly, a, it's a Jemison thing. Like to have this kind of diegetic narrator commenting on the meta structure of the story as she tells it, which I gotta say, and one thing is actually also just really kind of refreshing to have a fantasy author who's written different kinds of books, but you can talk about like, structural things that that author does it's right? true like if you, yeah i've read you know all the game of thrones books and if you asked me about george r. r martin as a writer i wouldn't have anything i could say i don't think <laughs> <laughs> well that's okay so that's funny i well i just i feel like i i just read him so i finally okay so <laughs> i'm so late to the game of thrones bandwagon i feel like there's a joke that some comedian did about like he's like you know what the worst thing is is when it's 2015 and you finally watch the movie heat and you just want to talk about it with someone. <laughs> I actually who... just watched Heat for the first time, like two okay. months ago. <laughs> but how how good is Heat though? Heat's a great movie, I think. It's a little long, but I love that. Heat's movie. it's a little full of itself in places, but Heat's good. There's a reason Heat's famous. Heat's yeah, yeah. good. <laughs> Heat's good. Anyway, so and you know, of course, right now you can talk with everyone about Game of Thrones, so it's not the same problem. But the problem that I had was, um, I, I know I've only read the first book, and so I could see how this would get tiresome. But I actually think like he is structurally interesting. It's a very simple idea, like just doing the different POV characters. But um, I, I, yeah. So in some ways, it's like he is, I think, really smart as a writer to have these different structural elements and even these little things. Like he makes characters say things like mistrust instead of distrust or whatever. Um, but I, what I think what you're saying is like, but his goal is to be invisible as a as an author as a narrator. Yeah. And I think she definitely wants to do something more difficult and more interesting when you pull it off. Um, I just think sometimes the problem for me is like if you don't pull it off, which I think in this book she doesn't, not completely, but just there's moments when I literally would just like if I was editing it, I would like, why are you making Hoa speak here? Cut this. Cut this. And all you would have had to do is just literally take that out because at that point you're just getting in the way of the reader. Like I felt, to be honest, a few times I did feel like almost like – talk down to like hey you know do you know what's going on here and it's like yeah man you you're doing a good job like i don't need to be told what you just showed me like that's not making it more complicated that's just you kind of implying that i didn't catch it <laughs> which i don't think is what she means but that's the effect when that i think impulse goes wrong um but you're right sorry not to defend martin against her i just i actually think martin was a better writer than i was expecting because i had such low expectations I thought he was he had a much better grasp on dialogue, especially like he's pretty good with dialogue, which is hard. Dialogue's very hard. <laughs> it I'm really is. Most of the stories I, I write too. these days don't have any. 
Well, that's that's always the answer. You know, you know how I love how literary people get around dialogue, which is like they just stop putting quotes on it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like it's like, I mean, okay, this is still bad dialogue. I know it looks more natural to you, <laughs> but people still sound stupid. <laughs> um. Anyway, so I want to so, yeah, talk about. <laughs> so this is not a. This is not. We're going to switch gears here, but it is related. We're talking about authorial intrusions of voice, though. How cool is it the two times that happens in Golden Hill by Francis Spufford? I think it happens twice. Yes. That he really intrudes who the author is? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the, the it happens both times. So Golden Hill is not, we're not... The plot doesn't really matter. But the point is, it's, it's, it, is <laughs> it, it, it is revealed that it is being written by a person. Like, again, in-universe, it is a narrative written by a person. Um, and there's a moment when the main character gets into a pretty complicated sword fight with somebody else, right? And it's a duel, and... The author, like the character, doesn't know anything about sword fighting. Uh, and it also happens, I think, when when they're playing a card game where the author doesn't really know anything about card games. And so the author of the in-universe story gets around it by just saying, look, I don't know enough about this. You're just going to have to imagine part of how this works, and here's why. And it still ends up being a really engaging paragraph, right? But it doesn't try to go into technical, you know, and then he did this kind of defense or whatever. And I think it's a really effective moment, but it also only happens like, twice in the whole book whereas it happens a lot more often in these and so i I think eventually i was like i get it (laughs) well and i so there's actually there's there's a great article in the new yorker i was trying to look up just now that um that yeah because i so what you're saying i think is true is that um that in some ways like jimison's doing these very literary things that she's almost like maybe not getting credit for right it's the same instinct that i think spufford has in some ways although this makes the great points this this this, uh review of spufford's novel the new yorker which i apologize for quoting the new yorker um i just feel like that's (laughs) like book podcast bingo um but yeah, so it talks about like in the 20th century, asides like these would be labeled metafiction. But in the 18th century, when the novel was coming into being, they served as the form's commentary on its own evolution. And I think that's that's exactly right because he uses it not and I it, you know it is metafictional, but he does use it just at the moment of like how would you tell this without knowing this, right? Like he's using it at a moment like you said of epistemological blindness. But the whole book, but the whole point of narrative is that like from fiction is that you can make anything. Up. I don't know. It's it's a perfect moment, but I also love that that it's. It's a good capturing in this article of they serve as a, as the forms commentary on its own evolution. And actually, in some ways, I think that's what Jimison's trying to do. She's trying to comment on the story and on narrative storytelling in general. But I, I don't think she just she just didn't need it in a lot of these sections, I felt. But yeah, that's too Spufford. That's too Spufford, you know, moments. <laughs> We're almost there. We got to get a we got to get a Vandermeer reference in here somehow, and then we'll, oh we'll have hit gosh. all of our weird recurring tropes. <laughs> How dare you! <laughs> all right, well, real quick. So I don't know if you have a lot else to, to talk about, but I did want to ask about. So we the last book we I asked you like what you thought we were going to get in this new book, including like um, what POV characters you thought we might get. Um, I can't remember. I think you might have said Nasson. I don't remember. Um, I, think I, def- I did, yeah. I definitely, I, and I, I think at the time I agreed with you, but it was definitely your idea. And I thought we might get some more from Tonky or someone else. And I think I still yeah. wish I, I still wish I'd gotten a little more for Tonky. Tonky still feels to me very underused, to be honest. Um, but so the basic question though is like, so what do you anticipate for this next novel? Either do you think we're going to get more POV narrators or or anything at all? So I think. Nassen and Essen are kind of working at cross purposes without realizing it. Um, Nassen's sort of been captured, I don't mean captured exactly, but sort of ideologically captured, it looks like, by a stone eater who is 
opposed to Essen, right? Uh, she calls him Steel, but I think he's clearly the gray stone eater that shows up in uh, in Essen's home and basically threatens to kill yeah. all of them. I think it's yeah. pretty clearly the same person. Uh, and so I think we have to have both Essen and Nassen probably to advance that plot, uh, unless we just... I mean, I guess you could just not have Nassen and have her just be a mysterious force that Essen runs into at the end, but that feels like it would be surprising. But I, I actually could see somebody like Tonki or Ika or somebody like that being a third POV character if we care about what's happening to this community as it tries to move further north and live there. Um, I don't know to the extent that Jemison's actually all that interested in that. Um, so we could end up with just Essen and Nassen or maybe even Shafa again because uh, he gets like one or two chapters in this as a POV character as well. Um, but I guess I'm not sure which I think is most likely to happen, but I, uh, I think definitely Essen and Nassen will be back. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think Essen and Nassen will definitely be back. Um, and I, I definitely think we're set up for like a mother daughter showdown, right? Because na- without saying it, that's actually one of the better parts of the book without saying it, Nassen is at least as powerful as her mother, if not more so, right? Like she's manipulating yeah. magic without even meaning to. And then when she does mean to, it doesn't seem to cost her. And she didn't do as big, a, you know, a big as, as big a magic kind of performance as Essen did when she kind of took out the city in the North. But seems like Nassen can basically grab Obelisk at will and do what she wants without much repercussion. Um, so I think we're definitely set up for some kind of showdown with those two. As far as the POV characters... I kind of, I'm kind of torn between like, you know, I think what what'll happen is mostly just those two. But I, I think I would like, um, I would love it if they like uh, gave one. If Alabaster really is a stone eater, I get that we're gonna have probably a lot more first person of Hoa. Like that might be the true third POV person is that we do. Yeah, that makes sense. Hoa from the first person, but um, but I would love to like if Alabaster actually changes. I think that would be a really interesting, you know, like. She loves this idea of memory and creating new identity and all that stuff. And if he really was a new stone eater, you you know, I don't think she will, but that would be a pretty rich source of doing her voicey stuff for sure. Um, yeah, I thought, no, absolutely. I will say I, that's again, I I have no idea like plot lies. What's I mean? I think okay, Kastrima refugees are going to go north to the now abandoned city that is full of dead people turned to statues, and. Nassan is going to keep coordinating with the bad stone eater, but like, I actually don't really know plot wise what's coming at all. And I think a lot of it's because it depends on all of the weird stone eater and um, earlier civilization stuff that it's still not clear to us what's going on with that, you know, with those elements. So I'm kind of, I, whereas you'd mentioned liking a lot of the little world building details that are so consistent. Part of that for me is, I said this last time, I love lost world narratives. <laughs> I love the idea of these like civilizations that are built on previous dead civilizations. And there's just this kind of mysterious advancement that we're always just out of reach of recovering. And so I, I think the novel is definitely going to lean in that direction. And I look forward to hopefully getting clarity on like what happened. And also if this is the far past of sort of the contemporary earth or if it's the far future. <laughs> Because I actually, I'm not sure yet. I'm not sure either. So I, we've, I think we've talked a lot about how this book is a little frustrating, because I, I think it is a little frustrating. And again, I think part of that's just because its nature is a second book. Uh, but some of it is, I do think there are some choices she made here that I don't fully understand. But I have two other sort of just fantasy cool things I want to point out in this book, uh, because I, I think we talk, we talk a lot about it 
its sort of literary qualities, particularly because the first book was really interesting as a literary project. But I would like to make sure we don't forget about just cool fantasy stuff that happens in it. So I have two. Uh, one, <laughs> the city on the other side of the world in the ocean yeah. by itself with a massive hole all the way to the core of the earth. That's pretty cool. Yes. I like that. I think that's neat. <laughs> Uh, that Alabaster tries to throw himself down only to be slowed by some kind of artificial gravity and then he sees something you know, unspeakable, which is clearly the mind of Father Earth or something like that. Yeah, I, I know. thought that, for all the sort of moments when I was like, I wish you gave me more details, that actually I thought that was about right. So I did want Same. more details, but I thought it was a very controlled and very good choice to not give me more details there. Yeah, I wanted, I wanted more details exactly the way she wanted me to want more details. Yeah, so that was a really effective moment, I think. And second, uh, the boil bugs are horrifying and really oh cool. Gosh. <laughs> You're right. I, I should have thought of that because I, I agree. That was one of the more uh, startling and potent elements that, <laughs> that just, yeah, was smart and weird and terrifying. So, so, so the boil bugs serve both as just like a, a narrative thing, you know, a, a sort of a, a Chekhov's Chekhov's horrified mutated insect thing <laughs> as well as a it's a commentary on the way the world works even as it's also you know just kind of a magical fantasy creature right um, boil bugs are so called for reasons nobody remembers until all of a sudden it becomes very clear why they're called that after the fifth season starts right they're little tiny beetle things that um, when the fifth season starts go from just being little pests to they, their, their natural predators disappear and whatever it is about the fifth season that kind of triggers the wildlife to go into survival mode causes them to start pressurizing water uh, inside their bodies and spewing it out as boiling water and attaching themselves to living tissue and eating the boiled stuff. It's really horrifying. <laughs> it's, it is. I, the, but the image of them kind of burrowing into your skin slightly and she, I could, as much as some of this novel was not clear, I could see that <laughs> yes. without any problem at all. They bring one of their hunters in who is just screaming and covered in what they think are boils, and he just keeps screaming, and they can't figure out why, and they sedate him, and he's still twitching. He's clearly still something, you know, it's not boils, and they realize it's the hardened carapaces of these beetles that are boiling him alive, uh, which they then fix because, of course, they can change heat. So, I mean, he, he dies, but they, they, you know, they figure out how to get rid of it in the future. But uh, And then later on, of course, she sicks them all on her enemies in a scene, which is... Also pretty horrific. Yeah, um, pretty. Yeah, Essen it's actually really, very. Yeah. Did you ever play Spec Ops: The Line? I didn't. No. Okay, it doesn't. It's a famous <laughs> video game from about six, seven years ago that does some narrative stuff. One of which is spoiler alert for this game from a long time ago. Um, so it's a, it's a sort of a third person military shooter set like five years into the future. And at one point, your character has to get from point A to point B, and there's a bunch of bad guys in the way, and everyone's kind of losing it, and you're stranded, and so they start using some, like, white phosphorus, uh, like an artillery piece or something that's loaded with white phosphorus, which is really bad. Uh, and the character controls it with, uh, like, an aerial cam, with, like, a drone or something like that, right? And so you see where the enemy positions are, and so you shoot a bunch of them, then you see it get a little out of control and go over to another area, and then later on... And that's the way it is, right? And later on, you walk into the other area, and it's the corpses of all the civilians you accidentally burnt to death with phosphorus. Oh, no. Um, it's it's a really powerful moment because you didn't realize you were doing it at all when it yeah. happened. Like, because you were just like, oh, and I hit something else over here, it looks like. Whoops. You know, uh, it's a really powerful moment. But anyway, the way this book does the boil bugs killing all of her enemies is at that same kind of remove with just enough to make you realize what's happening that I thought was actually quite quite effective right because she's in this kind of god's eye view connected to all the obelisks as she does enough magic to force all the nearby boil bugs in into the enemy camp basically and 
she can kind of see what's happening, but she can't hear it, and she can't really see it with specificity, but she knows what it must be, because she's described it so well earlier, right? Jemison described it so well when it happened to the one character earlier, and a few of the other origins that are kind of telepathically linked with her in that moment are freaking out and trying to get her to stop doing it. And I thought that was actually a very effective piece of writing to give you all of the sort of horror of it without making it, um, you know... I can't think of the word I want here. Without making it too much. Without making it um, just grotesque. Not grotesque. There's a word I want here. Self-indulgent, I guess, is, is kind of the, not the word I want. But you know that thing where people yeah. describe something horrible in such riveting detail that you know they've just they've just maybe pitching a tent as they do it. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a... <laughs> <laughs> yes. This doesn't do that. <laughs> well, and I do think, yeah, it also gives her the chance to do some, some narrative stuff that she likes. She likes to jump around and... You know, I don't know. She she puts herself in a place to, to play to her strengths, I guess. Um, but also, I you're also mentioning that that's the part of the Essen narrative I liked most was when we we got this very clear cut enemy and this kind of very clear cut action. A lot of times, that's when Essen's kind of emotionalism and her struggle to figure out how to feel about the world sort of uh, clicks in because everything is so um, urgent, you know. Whereas, honestly, yeah, I think, again, with the first 100 pages, why wasn't she looking for her daughter? <laughs> like, she did kind of just give that up. But, but you know, it made, it made sense. But I love the urgency of Essen because I feel like that always plays to Jimison's strengths to talk about, like, this character has been through so much, you know, that at moments of extreme pressure, she is dealing with these layers of, you know, kind of events in her life that are always about to burst through. Um but yeah, the God's Eye V was great. I agree. And also, um, that game, that video game sounds horrifying. It sounds like I would be so upset <laughs> if I played it's, it. Uh, <laughs> the game's not perfect, but it was, I mean, it was the thing everyone was talking about in 2013, and with a good reason, because they they set out, it was kind of a weird, it was an existing um, franchise. Spec Ops was an existing shooter franchise that no one cared about, and somebody took, you know, somebody in corporate quit paying attention for five seconds, and the team that made Spec Ops the line decided to try to make art, and I think they succeeded. I mean, <laughs> and so it's a kind of a clumsy third-person shooter that it's pretty fun as a shooter, but nobody would really take that seriously, that is also based on sort of, it's deliberately aping tropes from um, Apocalypse Now, like, to, to be, like, you're going into a strange place to find a Mr. Kurtz or something like that, right? Without yeah. being too much one-for-one, one, and does some really clever stuff to show your characters really losing touch with their moral selves, and doing some really clever things with the video game, like the tropes of the military shooter in 2013, and just video game interface stuff, without being too cute about it, right? So, like, it's a cool... It's not perfect. It's probably not the sort of thing that in 20 years anyone will still be talking about, but it was, uh, it was good. It was, it was, it was a was, moment, was, yeah. And it was it was worth it, it. It deserved a lot of its talking. That scene alone, that scene really is a lot. It's not even the only one. The game convinces you. I'm going to spoil it again. The game basically uh, makes you shoot into a crowd of civilians without ever actually making you do it, and you actually don't have to. But because of the way the game has been doing stuff so far, I think most players thought that was the only option and did it. Uh, but you actually don't have to. If you shoot your gun in the air, the civilians run away. But uh, gosh, I I didn't do that i uh and i think most people didn't and that's that's something i don't know like when the game sufficiently sort of brainwashes you into doing this horrible thing thinking it's the only thing you can do and it turns out it's not that's i mean that's that's something well you and i I have talked about like there's a one of the theories out there of like what separates maybe popcorn art from like serious art if that's if there's a separation and i think there probably is i don't know if we can ever quantify it um 
But uh, is that like, you know, the best kind of war movies implicate the viewer, the best kind of books implicate the reader. And that sounds like, and I never thought of this because I, I know other video games that have done stuff. Video games have, just because of the medium, <laughs> the platform to implicate the player in a way that a book never could, right? Because you're actually choosing something. And that's, yeah, so that, that's a really smart, <laughs> I don't know, way to, I don't know, draw the player into some big questions, surprisingly. Anyway, that's that's our Spec Ops The Line detour here for our podcast of 2019 about um, N.K. Jemison's book. <laughs> you know what? If you made it, if you, you know made what? it, fine. if you made it this far, congratulations. You deserved <laughs> us talk. Like, like, as far as it's a reward, you know, who else talks about the important issues? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, All right. I don't have a whole lot else to say about this book. I, I did enjoy it. I agree that it is frustrating in places, but I'm definitely excited to see where it goes next. And I also, and I think you said this, I do think part of the reasons it was maybe a little frustrating is because I, I knew I was supposed to talk about it in a podcast sometime yeah. later. And it's, I think, hard to talk about these sort of intermediary chapters like this. Um, so this was, but I think this was a worthwhile project. Like, I'm glad we didn't just cram the next two into one podcast because I think it was interesting to try. So, you know, I maybe agree. we failed, well, but you got to try. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I agree. I think that I would also say that it is the kind of book that I, I enjoyed probably more than it sounds like because I picked it apart so much. But I, the picking apart, I agree. I'm not even sure that I can, I'll can i be able to stand by everything I picked apart once the third book is in my system, right? So it is sort of that weird moment of like it deserves to be picked apart, I think, in some ways. And yet, of course um, – the true judgment of this, of this, of the, the true, like, I guess I won't know if it was, if it was, if it was worth reading this book until I read the third book almost, Do you know what I mean? Like, which sounds harsher than I mean it to sound, but I think especially in comparison to the first book, which like I would happily recommend, but then you have to read the second book, but then you don't know if it's worth reading all three books until the, it's, it's completed. Um, and it, and that was one of the complications is that the first book felt self-justified to me and this book feels like, well, we're, we'll, we'll see. We're going to see like where this journey takes us. No, I, I, think, that, I think that's right. So, But, I mean, I'm going to take the rest of the journey, so clearly it at least worked, right? True. <laughs> I'm going to finish. I do want to know what happens. Um, so did you have not... anything else to say about this book? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm tapped out. <laughs> All right. So we should also talk about what we're going to read after the Stone the Stone Sky next month because I think we're going to try to do it for the month after that. So uh, what are what are we reading next on the big read? Yeah, so I <laughs> I wouldn't say I, I talked you into this, although I, I did suggest it um, based on <laughs> kind of what I wanted to buy <laughs> next. Uh, <laughs> and I'm on I'm on a year long fast of trying not to buy books I don't already own because like everyone else I buy too many books to read, um, so I'm always behind. But um, the thing we're going to read, the main thing we're going to read is we're going to read uh, a collection of three plays, a trilogy of plays by Tom Stoppard. Um, the trilogy is called The Coast of Utopia. The plays are Voyage, Shipwreck, Salvage. Um, it uh, came out in the early 2000s. I think it ran you know, for a, a long time. Um, but it's basically about... Um, <laughs> this is going to be a big change. It's basically about the philosophical debates in pre-revolution Russia. And it's something like, I pulled up Wikipedia to make sure I had this right. It's between 1833 and 1866. And so Tom Stoppard is, if you know him, um, which not a lot of people do, but like he's known as sort of this intellectual comedic playwright. His probably most famous play is Arcadia, which 
honestly, if anyone reads a, t- a play by Tom Stoppard, they should definitely read that one. I have not read Coast of Utopia. I've wanted to for a long time. I'd love to see it, which is impossible. Uh, it's just hard to find a showing of it anywhere. But so we're going to read that. And then as a companion to that, which will not be like an obligatory part of our, our big read for either of us, but um, Stoppard used one of his sources to do a lot of the, the writing and dialogue and everything else was Isaiah Berlin's collection of essays on Russian thinkers called Russian thinkers. <laughs> so we're also going to have, <laughs> we're going to have that maybe as well. I, I you know, I, I'm not sure we'll read all of the Russian thinkers one, but I think it would be a helpful background for the plays. So yeah, so it's a play. It's not actually technically, I think um, 500 pages, which is partly why I thought we should append the Isaiah Berlin and also, but I, I think plays and poetry, there should be different rules um, just because it's going to be hard. To, if, like if, if, if we, if we want to read a play, unless we do like the Henriad, it's going to be hard to find something long enough. So this is the best that I could think of. <laughs> I think it makes sense. The only thing I'm disputing with you is you said Tom Stoppard's most famous play is Arcadia, and I don't think that's true. I think Tom Stoppard's most famous play is pretty clearly Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Oh, yeah, that's definitely true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no. You said that, and I actually just Googled him here to make sure I wasn't wrong about no, what he No, no, you're, like... <laughs> you're totally right. That was completely Joel's bias. I do think... Um, <laughs> I do think Arcadia is probably his next biggest play, and it's my favorite of his plays. <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely, if you've heard of him, it's from Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, 100%. <laughs> okay, cool, because I was really worried, because I was like, oh man, have I completely misunderstood this guy's play? And then then where would I be if I had misunderstood where Comstopper's <laughs> place in the canon was? And what would I do with my life? That would that would be an existential challenge. Yeah. I'd have to really, Counseling. really rethink <laughs> my choices. <laughs> no, I'm excited. I don't know much about it other than what we've talked about here, but I'm excited yeah. uh, to do something very different and to do a, a play. We haven't done a play or a series of plays yet nope. on this, and I think that'll be fun to, to see how that works out. Um, I'm excited. So, yeah, we're going to do uh, The Stone Sky for about a month from now, and then the month after that, we will do uh, The Stoppard. So, um, you know, come listen to us talk about these things. I hope you've been enjoying listening to these things. We say this, I think, every time, but. They're a lot of fun to do, so whether or not they're fun to listen to, we're going to keep doing them. So. It's true. It's, <laughs> you know, tough. <laughs> it's definitely, it's the epitome of the, the kind of the podcast impulse, which is like, we're having a good time, so why would we stop? Yeah, I, I don't have anything else, so I think uh, I think we'll probably, we'll probably just meet next to talk about the Stone Sky. That sounds good, man. Well, thanks for everyone who listened, and I'll talk to you soon, man. Yeah, talk to you later. Final thanks to Lily Jarvis and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their song Water Song for our podcast. You can find both of them on SoundCloud if you'd like to hear more of their music. 
please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or any other podcasting service. And, uh, you know, we'll see you next time.